the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2020 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, and welcome, if you haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome aboard. Now, the show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning usually is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and in today's world, it's extremely important to avoid probate. You don't want to have to go to court whether you're alive or dead in, in today's world. And as far as elder law is concerned, usually we're trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, uh, and, and we'll go into one of those topics a little bit later. But let's focus first on estate planning. As most of you know, each week we usually have one of our attorneys uh, join us. And who do we have today? Don't act like you forgot my name. <laughs> I'll introduce myself then. It's Nicole Donnelly, the Spanish-speaking attorney here with you guys today. Now, how does somebody with a last name of Donnelly speak Spanish? Easy. When your mom wants to stick it to your dad, she just teaches you Spanish before she teaches you English, and then you become the Spanish-speaking Donnelly. All right. Well, Nicole, what question have you pulled up out of the, the list? Well, we have a good one here out of the vault today talking about taxes. It says, Mr. Connors, I have a pretty sizable estate and my children keep telling me I should start gifting to get the asset out of my taxable estate. What does that even mean and what should I do? Well, what you should do would take a little bit more of a conference because there are a lot of implications as far as gifting. You know, a, a lot of cases we've seen this and I used to I used to bring this up in my seminars. And we are, you know, we're just done a set of seminars. But um, let's say you have a house and you paid 50000 for the house 30 years ago and it's worth a million dollars today. And I'm just using even numbers. You gift that house to your kids and we're going to assume your kids don't live in the house. You gift them the house for $30,000 that you paid 50000 for and it's worth a million dollars. You give it to your kids. Your kids hold that house till after you're gone they sell the house for a million dollars they're going to pay a capital gains tax on the difference between the 50,000 you paid for it 
and the million dollars that they're going to sell it for. So they're, they're going to pay a capital gains tax probably, and, and capital gains tax rates may go up, let's say $350,000. Now, at the same time, if you live in New York and your estate is under $6 million, there's no tax at all. Now, I know things may change, but I think people in, I think the state legislature in New York, as dense as they are, realize that they're losing a lot of people to Florida. So I don't think they're going to raise these state taxes right now in New York. So, you know, and, and they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm worth $12 million. What do we do? Well, now, if you're married, we can leave $6 million husband, $6 million wife, and get $12 million out completely tax-free. So why, in that case, would you pay $350,000 in taxes that you don't have to pay? And you might say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep the house. So we're going to keep the house for the kid's lifetime, so we're not going to pay capital gains tax. Well, one of the things that you really could lose on is if you're going to rent the property out, let's say it's worth a million dollars, and I'm rounding the numbers a little bit, but the first, if, if you hold the house and you, you own the house for taxable purposes on the date of your death, you can depreciate about $25,000 a year off your income. So if you rent the house out for, let's say, $40,000 a year and you got $15,000 worth of expenses and you net $25,000, you put $25,000 in your pocket because of something that we call is the stepped-up basis, assets step up to their date of death value. Now, the estate tax, the death tax, even if you're in the, you know, let's say you're in the the $10 million range in New York State, and you're single, because remember, and I should have mentioned this earlier, there's no tax between husband and wife. You know, the tax is only to the children or, or the other heirs. So let's say you have a $10 million estate in New York, and you gave the whole $10 million away. Well, if you die within three years, it's still taxable to New York State. And then, as far as the capital gains taxes are concerned, your children if all the assets have gone dramatically up in value, may have to pay $3 million in capital gains taxes, where at a million, at $10 million in New York State, you may only have to pay about a $1 million in estate taxes. So you got to be careful about what you do in gifts. And I, and I know there are a lot of crazy things going around, but one thing we're pretty sure, capital gains taxes being wiped out by death, what we call the stepped-up basis, I would say that's 95% that's going to stay in place because the chairman of the House, Wayne's, and means committee, a Democrat, said they're not going to make changes to the capital gains tax. And if just a few Democrats hold out, there's not going to be a change. And if the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee says he's not going to raise the capital gains being wiped out by death, the stepped-up basis, he's not going to change that. For the most part, it ain't going to be changed. So, you know, let's not panic. I remember back in, uh, I guess it was 2008, nine. When they were talking, there were a lot of changes, let's say, what was going to happen in the estate tax, and people were saying it's going to go back to a million dollars, it's going to be, everything's going to be taxed, and it went from one million dollars to 3.5 million dollars, and from there it went from 3.5 to 5 million dollars, and eventually when Trump got elected, it went up to almost 12 million dollars. So, and, and let's not panic what may happen in the next few months, because hopefully, most of the people we're talking to out here are going to outlive this administration, as bad as some of the ideas are, and, and they're having problems getting things passed. So I wouldn't panic. I wouldn't make gifts willy-nilly. Um, at, at the same point, I would certainly not make a gift that may save you $100,000 in estate, death taxes, but cost you three four $400,000 in capital gains taxes. It just does not pay. 
when you make a gift, you got to consider it, give it some thought. Yeah, if you want to give some cash away, you want to give $15,000, which is the exemption amount where you don't have to file a gift tax return. And, of course, that $15,000 is for husband and wife. So let's say we have a husband and wife and they have two kids. Both kids are married. Husband gives $15,000 to his son, $15,000 to his daughter, $15,000 to his daughter-in-law, $15,000 to his son-in-law. The wife can do the same thing. So they can give, you know, roughly $120,000. They don't have to file a gift tax return. But at the same point, the capital gains tax may be a problem on, on these assets if they appreciate it a lot in value. Cash, there's no capital gains tax. So if you have, if you have cash, you want to reduce your estate by making those $15,000 gifts. Be my guest because there's no negative side. There's no negative on the other side of the transaction because there's no capital gains on cash. You give away $100,000 worth of stock. Yeah, you may get that $100,000 out of your estate, but you may have to pay twenty dollars or $30,000 in capital gains taxes later. So you got to be careful in making your gifts. You need a well-coordinated plan. You just can't make gifts, you know, off the top of your head and because you're reacting about some article that you read in some newspaper about some proposal by some senator that may or may not have a chance of passing or may even have a chance of passing, but maybe it's going to be repealed in two and a half years. Hopefully the political climate will change, and I think most of you out there are hoping very much that the political climate is going to change in the next couple of years. Um, all right, Nicole, so what – I, I if you have any questions about that, you're trying to make a plan, whether you're going to make gifts or you're going to leave your assets through a trust, which will avoid probate, and hopefully get the assets out tax-free, you can give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Nicole, we had another question we were talking about a little bit earlier in the show. We do. There is somebody here, one of our listeners out there, who are very interested in having their favorite taxi driver as a witness to their will. I don't know why, but they want to know if that's who the witness to their will can be. Their kids keep telling them that, no, that should not be the witness to their will. She really wants this favorite taxi driver. So who should be the witness to your will, Mr. Connors? Tell this listener she needs help. <laughs> well, ordinarily, the witness to your will, I mean, it, it may sound self-serving, but the witness to your will should be the attorney who drafted your will and professionals from, like we always use professionals from our office to witness a will, usually attorneys, you know, experienced paralegals. And the reason for that is if there's some, if there's a problem with your will and the witnesses have to testify, and, you know, sometimes in bureaucracy you may just have to testify in a will because somebody took the staples out of the will to make photocopies, and the court wants to know if the will in front of them is the same will that they're looking at. You know, did somebody make a change? Did somebody rip out a page and put another one in? And, and the witnesses may have to testify. Well, first of all, you want a professional who has – pride in the work they do and is willing to come into court and testify and if somebody's going to contest your will believe me if i'm probating a will and the last thing i want is to be probating a will and somebody's contesting the will and you bring in a witness and the witness says well i don't remember anything about it i don't know um i don't know uh anything i think it's my signature i'm not sure if i witnessed a will that could cause a serious problem. And I know some lay witnesses, they think it's a defense mechanism. If they, they think they say, 
Well, if I don't remember, then they get off the hook and they won't be bothered anymore. And in some cases, that just extends the controversy. A will witness, a will is not just a writing. You fill out a form on paper and it goes through. A will is a writing witnessed by two people who are willing to testify in court that they witnessed a will in accordance with the laws of the state of New York. And, you know, my wife Beth's in the room now, and uh, just earlier today she had to testify on a, a will proceeding, which was done in 1984. Obviously we didn't remember all the facts of a will signed in 1984, but Beth, what did you have to go over? Well, first of all, I looked at the will, and then um, we do... I don't, I guess I have, I feel like I've just signed thousands of wills and the importance of the procedure cannot be underestimated because I did not know this man. I did not remember him at all. But what I do know is we have the same procedure every time we, uh, as, as I go in as a will witness, as I sign that will, the procedure never changes. So I can always swear to the fact that this is the way we did it. No, I'm sorry. I don't remember the person, but I know I would not have signed it as a witness if this, pro if this procedure had not been followed. And, um, it, even the simplest thing like that can be a little nerve-wracking. If you, if someone's asking you questions, well, you know, do you remember the guy? It's embarrassing. Uh, part of me says, well, no, I don't. I'm so sorry, I don't remember him. But um, you know, you can't get flustered, and you have to know this is the way we do it. So even though I don't remember the person, I do know that my signature means that it was done properly. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, that's one of the things. If you've done a few hundred wills, a few thousand wills, and I, I can't tell you how many wills that I've done. I've probably witnessed 10,000 wills in my career, and obviously I'm not going to remember them all. I remember some characters here and there, but for the most part, you say that we follow the same procedure each time, and if you've done it a couple of hundred times, you know what the procedure is. You don't have to remember the, the exact details for the will signing. You just remember that you did it always the same time. And, I mean, there is a routine on it. There's, you, you, you have to declare it's your will. Let's say if you're the testator, of the person making the will. You have to declare it's your will. You have to ask the witnesses to sign the will. Um, the witnesses have to sign the will in the presence, or the testator has to sign the will in the presence of the witnesses. Now, there are some exceptions and things like that, but that's the proper way to do it. And then the witnesses should sign in front of the testator and everybody should be in the room at the same time. Doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but when you start making devi deviations from the plan, that's where you can get into trouble. And, you know, you, you can read the law and it's a little bit more liberal than the way we do it. But, you know, the procedure roughly in our law office and, and I think most law offices, the witnesses don't leave the room. The witnesses and the testator are in the same room. The testator declares the will to be his or her will, asks the witnesses to witness the will. The witnesses watch the testator sign his or her name to the will. The witnesses then affix their signatures to the will. The attorney reads the attestation clause, which is extremely important, you know, at the, at the end of the ceremony or during the ceremony, I should say. It could be done simultaneously or whatever. But... 
a, a will again, and I can't stress this enough because some people print up wills off the internet and they get any two people to witness it. You will goes to probate. The court wants to interview the witnesses to the will and you could have a problem, let alone if you can't find the witnesses to the will, which it's a lot easier to find people today than you could, let's say, 15, 20, 30 years ago. But at the same point, we had a will that involved a $4 million estate and the two witnesses to the will were two people that obviously had moved, and they had extremely common names. And we had a very difficult time finding them. We eventually did find them. But believe me, you know, you got you, you got a name like Maria Torres witnessed the will, and I, I think it may be very close. Maria Sanchez witnessed the will, and it was very difficult to find who Maria Sanchez was when she moved. Um, and also, one of the questions I was asked earlier today was, well, you know, have you ever signed a will where you thought the person um, essentially might have been incompetent? And one of the things that's, that's always been very important to me, the way you're describing the way we do it, there's only the testator in the room with us. There's no one else standing there like poking them in the back. Yeah, this is what you want to do. I mean, I would never sign a will if if I thought that the if someone had had undue influence put on them or um if they didn't understand it, if they didn't understand the will that because they read it ahead of time before we sign it. So I mean, it's it it's important. The procedures are very important from different points of view and you don't realize how important they are I know that I even though I did not remember this testator I knew that at that point in time there was no one telling him what to do he signed it that's what he wanted to do and that's it Michael if somebody has a question ask us through the email or otherwise how do they do so the way you do it is you go and you just go on G on Gmail, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And you'll be able to hear from us, and maybe your question will be even, even be answered on air if it's not confidential. Yeah, that's well, it doesn't happen that often, but every once in a while there's too much personal information in the question. So <laughs> if that's the case, you can schedule an appointment and talk to one of our attorneys. And, Nicole, do you have any parting words for our listeners out there today? As always, and you already know this, I'm a veteran. Come visit me, and I'm always glad to talk to you guys. <laughs> okay, in English or Spanish? In English or Spanish. <laughs> and we are always glad to have you on. We are always glad to hear from our listeners. So just thank you so much for joining us today. And, yeah, just, well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. 
This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment uh, of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now, we have Robert Seelig, and he's from the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services. It's a charitable, not-for-profit organization. And Robert, exactly who are you and what do you guys do yeah uh well first off mike thanks for having us um and one i I, before we get into our interview i just want to thank you for the work you do because i know you uh assist families with end-of-life needs and estate planning and obviously i work for the catholic church Uh, i run an organization catholic funeral and cemetery services i'll i'll refer to us sometimes as cfcs uh when people hear that name um, but basically, I run an organization that works throughout the United States, uh, reinvigorating the, the Ministry of Catholic Cemeteries um, to meet the needs of Catholics uh, and loved ones uh, throughout the church, um, as it's a ministry that has evolved over 2,000 years and needs to address people's needs today. Yeah, I guess over 2,000 years. I guess you can go back to Joseph of Arimathea then. That's right. That's right. And. And that's why, you know, a lot of people want to know uh, what the church teaches. How do I go about having a funeral? How do I go about burial? All the things that none of us are prepared for, even though all of us are going to die at some point. Right. And we should be prepared for that conversation. Well, you know, I, I, I'm i going to give you a little background here. You know, in Brooklyn, there's a very famous cemetery, Greenwood Cemetery. And when it first opened up of course a catholic couldn't be buried in the cemetery or they weren't allowed to from the, from the church teaching of course right now there are a lot of famous catholics who have been buried in the cemetery there are even you know mausoleums where they have altars and um masses said within the mausoleum so h- how has that teaching changed and cremation that's changed too yeah oh yeah i mean you've, you've hit on all the all the important things that a lot of people have misinformation about you know so so first off, like even for 
Catholic church, Catholic cemeteries, a lot of times there was a Lutheran cemetery or, or uh, a non-denominational cemetery down the road. And, and so the rules would probably expand a little bit. Um, you know, the Catholic church believes that if you're baptized in Christ, you should be welcome to be buried in a Catholic cemetery, as well as family and friends and loved ones, which, you know, is very ecumenical and, and, uh, and allows people uh, to feel comfortable kind of coming in through the gates of a Catholic cemetery. Um, and that's kind of fundamentally the first piece that a lot of people have questions about. And then this idea that Catholics uh, can be cremated came out of Vatican II in the 1960s. Um, and it took about 20 years for people to, to understand that it was okay. It was actually like, is it really all right? Do I feel guilt about it? Um, and so we embrace families with that decision. And, and they always have the question about, well, if I'm going to be cremated, how do I go about having my funeral? How does that work? Because it was almost like a technology change that changed the way that people were traditionally used to going down the path of a funeral. Um, and the Catholic Church, for 2,000 years, we've buried the body, and people always think, even on TV, of the priest at the grave doing sprinkling holy water and, and saying last rites. And so that, that you know, ritual kind of changed, and so we have a lot of people with lots of questions about that. Yo, you know, like I, uh, like I said, you know, like it's changed so much because I remember even when I started practicing law well after Vatican II, some funeral directors would not cremate the remains unless it was in the will. Right now, I think more than half the people, or at least half, close to half the people, probably are having their remains cremated. Right. Yeah. In fact, uh, nationally, it's over 50% now. Um, and obviously, uh, your descendants can make the decision whether you're cremated or buried, unless you're really, you know, clear with them up front about plan, you know, what you're your desires are and plans are. So again, you know, those are, those are kind of those natural questions that some of us, you know, have to kind of deal with and, and, and we want to make sure our kids and, and family members know. So our, our biggest advice to families is not to, to run from these questions. Um, in fact, we, we suggest to them that they pre-plan their burial or their funeral, uh, their cremation ahead of time, because it's actually kind of a gift to the, to the rest of the family to, to make these decisions. And if you, and if you go about appropriately pre-planning it, one, there's a financial advantage for kind of doing that ahead of time um, from an estate planning perspective that's beneficial. Um, but the real gift is that, you know, the, the children and the family um, kind of know what their parents' desires are. And, and even to the point, if you can pre-plan your funeral liturgy, where you actually say, I want so-and-so to do this reading and so-and-so to do that reading, it, it takes a lot of the stress out of it for a family who's going through grief at the time that, that that you pass. So, um, so we recommend really pre-planning this. And, and instead of sitting at the cemeteries, we actually reinvigorate the ministry and the diocese to have the staff go out to the churches and to, to, to meet with families uh, where it isn't forcing the family to drive down the cemetery to ask these questions. We, we believe we need to be out in amongst where people, uh, you know, practice their faith and, and live their lives. And that that's part of the, the change that we bring in dioceses where we, we operate their cemeteries for them. Yeah, so let me ask you exactly what is your mission? I'm 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 a little confused about that, or I think some of our listeners might be. Yeah, so so our mission is to, we were we were founded at the request of a group of bishops, where they found that the Catholic cemeteries um, were going through periods of decline, just like you talked about. Cremations increase. People they they may the cemeteries may not have addressed the cremation issue. Um, so we actually just reinvigorate the ministry to make it more of an outreach oriented ministry, meaning that that we actually reach out to the churches and, and we do education on end of life issues for, for Catholics and, 
and loved ones so that they know what to be prepared for. So our mission is actually to reinvigorate the, the ministry. And we, we have basically an organization that we work, uh, we've worked in over 30 dioceses in the United States. And from a Catholic perspective, there's about 180. So we work anywhere from California to uh, the Archdiocese of San Juan in Puerto Rico to Denver and Detroit. Um, we don't currently work in the, the state of Washington, though I've had a, a couple of bishops contact me. Um, and so our, our, our job is really to, to help invigorate the ministry. That's the mission. Um, but it's really on a, a family perspective that I think that the mission is most important. It's really to meet families where they are and to help get them more comfortable around these issues and educate them so that they don't feel like they're they're blind to understanding what's going to happen at the moment that mom or dad passes and they, they're kind of in the, the moment of grief trying to solve all this, right? It's to, to kind of proactively help them. Because we, we believe in the resurrection. So we, we believe this is a transition period in life, not one that, that ends. And so we want families to feel prepared for that transition. You know, I want to step back a second. What is the proper disposal of somebody's remains, cremains, that have been, you know, that have been cremated? You know, you just don't throw it on the ashes on the uh, right on the sea, or do you? Right, yeah. Yeah, no, in fact, that's, that's you're, you're hitting right on the, the big questions, right? So uh, the church teaches that cremated remains should be placed in, uh, should be buried in a sacred place. Uh, traditionally, it would be a Catholic cemetery, but where there is not a Catholic cemetery, you can have your priest come to a, uh, a non-denominational cemetery or non-sectarian cemetery and come and bless the grave and, and do it. So the, the belief is that you should not take the remains home, right? Because that creates a, an issue as to where those remains go and, and you should not scatter them. Um, and some people even today will say, gosh, they, they just changed that like five years ago. And it's no, it's, it's changed 50 years ago, but we're still just waking up to the fact that the rituals have changed and we just don't prepare for it. Yeah, but again, you shouldn't. I mean, like a, a lot of people and we go into those situations right now, you know, you don't want your, your what we call cremains. You don't want them, let's say, scattered over the uh, or the the East River, the Hudson River, Hoboken Pier. I mean, those are some things that I obviously I remember are out. To, what about out yeah. to sea? Yeah. So the Catholic Church does have a ritual for burial at sea, but it was really meant for uh, times where there was uh, in, in times of war and and uh, and the such. Um, the reason the Church teaches that you should take their cremated remains is that that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the cremated remains are the remains of the body and they should be placed in a sacred place, just like we place, you know, Jesus in, in a, uh, a mausoleum crypt, right? Uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and so the, the, so they don't permit the, the, the scattering um, from that perspective. And that's, I think uh, probably the, the first piece, but there's a kind of a practical reason for why we don't, you know, uh, recommend that is that, you know, there's no place to go from a, uh, a remembrance standpoint, a, a place to go to grieve, a place to go to, to connect, um, you know, to our ancestors, right? And so um, just as we wouldn't take the body and dispose of it, um, you know, by scattering, right, we, we don't want to do that with the cremated remains because we believe that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this, and, and this occasionally happens, whatever, in New York. You get one of these old-time churches that had an, a graveyard, which is not very common today, but all of a sudden that graveyard is on an expensive piece of property and it gets sold. Now, this might have more to do with state law, but what would the ch teaching of the church be in that type of situation? 
Well, when you say, and maybe you can help clarify for me, you know, uh, an old graveyard, right, that, or cemetery that's now been full, um, and sometimes you can see them right in the middle of, of town, right? And, and so uh, in some places we don't touch the remains or remove them. There's the occasion where they may discover a burial ground like at a building site, and so the question is what do we do? And, and normally you always have to follow state and municipal laws around removal of remains. Um, so is the, is the question... What do we do with those old cemeteries? Um, maybe you can help me there. Okay. Well, I just like for instance, I know there's an old uh, Dutch Reformed church was it's was on a, you know, the cemetery goes back to the 1700s, you know, the 18th century or whatever, and they removed, you know, the the quote the graveyard wasn't a cemetery back then; it was attached to a church and a graveyard, and they moved it to another cemetery. But I don't think that oh, happens God. all the time. No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, the first thing is just, you know, when you have those situations where there's a cemetery and it's now in a new area or it's in an area that's been redeveloped, um, there are occasions where the remains will be removed to another cemetery. And that's done on a whole permitting process with city and notifications of next of kin and, and the such. Um, but there are a lot of occasions where we actually just preserve these cemeteries. Um, and they're set up with trust, and, and we maintain them and, and, and do that. And that, that's the desire of the church is to, to maintain, you know, sacred ground like that. Um, but there are those occasions that you know that, you know, either the, the state or, or has, uh, you know, legislated something that requires movement. And so it's always to take those remains and reinter them, you know, in another sacred cemetery space that, that the remains can be uh, memorialized. What is the general rule of church? Let's say a, a Catholic cemetery that's operated by the respective dioceses. Well, how many times has oh, that I'm ever sorry. happened, or do you know? Uh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Let's say for are there many instances where a cemetery owned by the diocese has, has closed down and moved moved the grave sites? Does that no, happen in so a Catholic it's cemetery? Very rare. Yeah. No. That there are very rare moments. The 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 type of moment I can speak to is where there's a Catholic cemetery and up on the hill, there may have been what were called pauper's graves where the people were buried outside of the cemetery and it wasn't uh, officially a cemetery. A lot of times we'll get requests to move those remains into the cemetery proper um, for, for burial. Um, it's pretty rare. There's the occasion with uh, say religious orders that they may sell their facilities. And there was a small uh, cemetery where the, the nuns or the or the priests were buried, and, and a lot of times those are moved to another Catholic cemetery. So those are the the most common situations where you hear of of removals. What the the, the public? What what do you offer the public, and, and how would they contact you, and how can they learn more about your organization? Yeah, so let me just tell you, we we do two things. One, you know, as I mentioned, our mission we. We actually uh, work with dioceses and bishops to reinvigorate their ministry. So, so part of our work is to go to them and, and uh, look at the diocese and all the Catholics and the families that are being served, and we, we provide them management services. Um, and we even came up with a uh, capital fund where we had outside uh, investors that re realized that there was a, a benefit from bringing the capital to kind of reinvigorate the ministry. So we call that the, the CFCS Capital Fund. So, so that's a, a role that we do within the church. Um, but for families that are, are listening and individuals, we, we do have a website. It's uh, uh, cfcsmission.org, and, and that contains information for people uh, where they can locate cemeteries. They can find out uh, best practices and decision-making around 
funeral planning and cemetery planning. So I'd invite people to, uh, to visit that. Um, and so there's really, we have a plethora of information that's available resources. Um, like I said, our, our key mission is really to educate families, make them feel comfortable and to encourage them to pre-plan this, just as you'll speak with families about estate planning. We think an important element is to actually plan your funeral and, and, and really, in a sense, you're also communicating your faith to your loved ones. And so we're a faith-based organization that, that stands there as witnesses to help families kind of support the rest of their family through transition from this life to the next. And Robert, I think we should touch base on what you said earlier. You know, sometimes when a person passes away, you don't want to add more stress to the situation. The more you can take care of for your families, the better. Whether it's the at least at at the very least gravesite number one, I would say, pre-plan your service number two, and then to the point where maybe you do talk about what readings are are there. And I, I know sometimes people find it unpleasant, but at the same time, five ten minutes of conversation may save a lot of stress, you know, on the family because occasionally, in some cases, family members fight in these things and make a you know a, a sad situation. Much, much worse. So planning always helps. And and thank you, Robert, for what you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks. And, you know, the, the one thing I just want to kind of add to that, and, and so the hardest time to have that conversation is when somebody's, you know, really at the point in their life where they're struggling and, and so the kids are talking to mom or dad about what they want to do. It's much easier if mom and dad are talking to the kids when they're, they're healthy or in a position where they can can share. Um, and it's the real gift is by actually just taking a couple of simple steps to allow the kids and the rest of the family to know how they can kind of uh, celebrate the, 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 the love and the life of the family when, when you know, a, a parent passes. Um, we all want to do, you know, we're all grieving in our own way when someone passes. So we, we really want to actually play a role where we help support the rest of our, our siblings. And like you said, when there's discord or the family is separated, um, Having those things laid out ahead of time is like a gift because the, the family does want to come together, right? And, and it's where we reconcile and we see each other and we, and we understand that, yeah, not everything was perfect in life, right? Life is messy. We, we have, you know, and so the funeral is a time where we, we confront a lot of those emotions. And it's, it's harder to plan when that's the, the, the emotions that are coming on. So um, I, I think you're right. The, the, the opportunity for families to, uh, to, to spur that conversation, whether it's uncomfortable or not, is something that we just, we have to learn to get, you know, comfortable with it. And it's, it's again, you know, just something we, we tend to do out of an avoidance of, of like it's going to get corrected some, some other point in our lives. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Robert Seelig from the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services, uh, you know, a charitable not-for-profit. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with our audience here at Connors Corner. All right. Thanks very much, Mike. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's going to be helpful for, uh, you know, some people are going to say, well, I don't want to talk about my funeral, but some people I think it'll be helpful for. Yeah, good, good. Well, and you know, I mean, with estate planning and everything, it's it's even the thing that people put off in that, right? It's yeah. take care of the finances, leave it to the kids to figure things out. And, and that's where you do see all the, yeah. you know, the discord I mean, that, that comes about and wills and, and such. The one thing is about we're off the air right now, but the one thing about most of our clients is they are thinking about this stuff, so they do it. This is more yeah, for the audience right. that's out there that's not thinking about it, if you know what I mean. Right, right. No, I get it. That's why I, I do these uh, these interviews because we just, from a, a mission purpose standpoint, feel like uh, 
we, we can't all go through life in denial um, because there's there's just too much chaos in the world. Right. So this is <laughs> these are important things to get people to face up to. Right. The one thing is we're all going to die. It's the, uh-huh. the one equalizer at the end of the day. So um, anyway, so thanks. Yeah, it's great talking to you. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, my everybody. Son, Michael, Hello, everyone. And a surprise guest. <laughs> Beth, we have another email question. We do in. indeed. Can, can you read that? Yes. Dear Mike, I don't have any family. I made my best friend my executor, my power of attorney, and healthcare proxy. He decided to move back to the Philippines where he's from. Can he still serve and help me if I am incapacitated? Thank you. Well, the the short answer to that is yes, but uh, you can't serve as executor unless you're a U.S. citizen. And Mel, ha- Mel's with us right now. That's our surprise guest. And <laughs> Mel's it's good to be back. And Mel's admitted <laughs> as an attorney in the Philippines. So what what's the follow up? What's the uh, to this? From a practical standpoint, it would be hard for some. If you are incapacitated, it would be hard to have that someone from the Philippines to make healthcare decisions for you, or even more so, sell your house, right? So you're advised to basically have someone in the U.S. will be able to carry out your estate plan, your your trust, well, your power of attorney and stuff like that. So in the Philippines, there's no limitation as to who can serve as a power of attorney. We have different forms over there. Here we have a living power of attorney, a living trust. It can go pretty much like any standalone document. In the Philippines, they don't do that. They do a specific special power of attorney, so on a case-by-case basis. So, they, But they will honor a power of attorney over there. Yeah. Don't, don't in other know. words, any legal document that you have, if you have a will in the U.S., it's going to be honored in the Philippines. It will be. It will yeah. be. But I got to tell you, probate in the Philippines, it can drag you to decades. <laughs> well, we're not quite we're there right now here. in New York. But I guess we might approach that in another few years. Um, And and that's one of the reasons it's important to avoid probate. But let's go through this again. To be an executor, ordinarily, if you're going to be sole executor, you should be a U.S. citizen. And technically, it doesn't matter whether you're you're living in the Philippines, in Europe, Norway, um, 
or the United States. If you're a U.S. citizen, you can serve as executor. Again, as Mel said, it may not be. What, what's the time difference between New York and Manila right now? Twelve hours. Twelve hours. So from that point of view, it would be a little hard to do business because you got to figure out, you, you know, if you call 10 o'clock at night to get here at, 12, at 10 o'clock in the morning or vice versa, it's going to be a little hard to do business. I mean, it could be done. We do that all the time. I mean, listen, we have problems. We have people in the United Kingdom and Ireland that we deal with all the time, but the time difference is five to six hours there, depending on what time of year it is. So, yes, that's fairly easy to handle. Mel, I got a question for you. Let's say land ownership in the Philippines. What is What are the rules different? Do you have, like, with the Tarrant system? Yes, that's, that's still the system in there. So you lose a title, you're pretty much, like, going through hell. <laughs> to be able to sell your property. So if you have a torrent certificate of title, hang on to it, keep it in a safe place, and um, you need that to be able to transfer property to someone else. All right, now let me explain torrent system because we used to have the torrent system in some parts of Brooklyn. Some of the old Dutch settlements have passed on, They had, which was Canarsie. People had torrent deeds in, in Canarsie and some parts of East New York. And, and what's a torrent deed? Well, basically, and a lot of people are, probably think that's what is true. In order to sell your property, you need the old deed, the actual physical old deed, in order to transfer your property under the torrent system. Now, in the system we have right now in New York City, and they did transfer all the torrents properties to regular deeds. I, I, you know, I can't remember how many years ago it was done, but it was done more than a couple of years ago. So in the old system, let's say you had a house in Canarsie. You lost your deed to the property in Canarsie, you'd have to go to court and get a replacement. I wouldn't call it hell, but it's it's a pain, especially if you got a buyer waiting to, to close. And, you know, and in other words... You're not going to get it in a year. Right. The physical deed is important. Right now, and, and a lot of people don't realize this even in New York, the physical deed is not that important. It's recorded with the county clerk, depending on where you live. And the county clerk has the original deed recorded, and they have a picture of it. And basically, if you're going to close on your property, then, you know, you go to the, the, you don't have the deed, you get a copy of the deed from the county clerk or the title company that's insuring title for your buyer is going to go to the county clerk, see what deed's on record, and, and that's going to take care of it. So if you lose your deed, don't panic. You really don't need your original deed right now to transfer property. And even if you have those old properties in Canarsie, um, the torrent system, they switch it over to the, to the regular city recording system. So let's say for the sake of argument, people come in all the time and say, you know, I, uh, I'm i all upset. I looked all around my house. I can't find my deed. It's not that important now. You can get on the computer. It's You type in ACRIS, have your address, and it's not that hard. Even I can do it occasionally. It's not that hard, and then eventually you're going to find uh, your deed. You know, and then you have a, a copy of the deed, and that's what's recorded with the city. And... Actually, I have to compliment the city on one thing. Since they started putting the computer system into place, things have run very smoothly. Originally, they said, okay, sign two deeds in case we lose one or something like that. And, you know, we all feared for the worst, but it really has worked very smoothly. And you can get on the computer, check your deed. Like if you come into our office and change your deed into a trust, about a month later, in an even shorter period of time than that, you can go on the computer and see your deed is recorded with the city. You may not get the original back for another month or two after that, but your deed is recorded with the city, 
It's going to be there hopefully for, you know, 100 years. And right now you can check almost any deed recorded after 1966. So we can go back over 50 years right now and get deed. Now, if you, you bought your house in the late 50s or something like that, no, that deed's not going to be on the uh, computer system. But it's still with the county clerk. It's not as easy as it used to be just going to the county clerk and picking it up. But you can get it. But don't panic. And if, if you lost your original deed, don't panic. We're not on a torrent system here in New York. It's just a little bit of history. But I was going to law school, though. Again, there were there were parts of Brooklyn that were under the torrent system. I think there were parts of Long Island here, too. In, in other words, some of the old Dutch uh, settlements. So, Mel, uh, your license to Philippines. What? How does land ownership difference in the Philippines? Now, if, if I'm a Filipino resident, I can own real estate in New York. If I'm a New York resident, can I own real estate in the Philippines? It's not more of residency. It's more of like citizenship. Okay, so, let's say I'm a U.S. citizen. If you're a U.S. citizen, you will not be allowed to own real property with limited exceptions. If you were a former national born, now naturalized as a U.S. citizen, you will be allowed to own some real property. So don't, do you have Chinese investors in the Philippines right now? There are, but you know, there's a workaround. Um, every, every year, the, the Philippine government issues a foreign investment list which basically is a workaround in the Constitution which prohibits foreign investors creeping into the market. So every year they change that, or every two years, I don't know now. Um, so some businesses, foreign investors can come in, but we call it naturalized, nationalized business. You cannot come in. You have to do some aggressive business planning over that, over there. Now, what do you do here at Connors & Sullivan? Oh, <laughs> I enjoy my work here. That's not funny. I, I enjoy my work here. I've been a commercial transactional litigation attorney in the Philippines for over 10 years. Uh -huh. I moved here like over seven years ago, straight to Connors and Sullivan, do real estate uh, closings and uh, trust in the state's work. I've been here for over six years, still love the job. Right. <laughs> What's your family situation right now? I have another boy on the way. On the way. <laughs> Well, that's what I was talking. He was going to take paternity leave oh, for eight months. months. <laughs> if that gets signed into law, that would be exciting, right? Oh, no. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, goodness. What's the due date, if you don't mind? It, she's due November 22nd, but because of high blood pressure, uh -huh. she's being induced. They said, you're being induced November 1st. So, okay. No, that's not going to happen. Okay. It's undas, right? So we had to move it like November third next week. Okay. Oh, so it's upon us. That's wonderful. Oh, that's <laughs> so wonderful. if you want to see Mel, you better see him in the next week because that's after right. that he's going to take six months paternity leave. And if anyone wants to question that, let me know. Oh my goodness, six months. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about you the other day. We were watching. I we were watching the old John Wayne movie Back to Patan, and uh, Chris Kalinowski wrote the book Last Stand of Patan said. That was the most historically correct movie of that area that was done, which I was a little surprised because, you know, you don't you, you don't think of a Hollywood World War II movie of being historically accurate, yeah. especially that was done right at the end of the war. And they had pictures of some of the soldiers who were survived the Bataan death march at, you know, they were freed at the end of the war. And it, it, it is an interesting film. And. You know, it's actually, it's the only film I think, and I'm pretty, well, I'm pretty sure I know this one. It's the only film where two of my favorite actors are in the same film, John Wayne and Lawrence Tierney. And Lawrence Tierney was from Brooklyn. If 
you know, 50 years later, you could catch him in Reservoir Dogs. He's the old Irish guy. And in a few places, he tended bar in the same place as my father. So they were acquaintances. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, Lawrence Tierney and John Wayne were in the same movie. Not that Lawrence Tierney had a big part back then. He became a star a year or two after that with Dillinger. Well, All right. Great. Well, I think we're wrapping up for today. Yep. Hopefully, you know, check back with us in uh, next week. We'll be on the same place and stations. And thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Mel, good luck. I know yes, the audience hooray. out there is going to wish you luck. It's always you know, fun to be here. I'll see you soon again. Well, hopefully less than six months. <laughs> Happy oh, Halloween please. and don't forget to vote. Right. Bye-bye. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.